Mark chapter 2, verse 18 through 22. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it. The new from the old and the worst tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the new skins. And the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. This is the word of the Lord. Please pray with me. Father, we do come to you today with hearts that want to sit under your authoritative word. God, we are a people who long to hear from you. We are a people who long to have our lives shaped by your word, your truth, your revelation. So God, we give thanks, we give praise today that we have your word. Even as we've considered briefly through prayer the persecuted church around the world, God, we're reminded that there are many believers around the world who just don't have access to the word. If they do, it's very limited. And yet here we are, truly in the land of plenty. Probably most of us own multiple Bibles. We all have them on our devices. We have an abundance of your word. And for that, we give you great praise today. God, thank you for your word. Thank you that we have it. And God, we pray now that as we turn our attention and our hearts to this passage in Mark chapter 2, that God, you would use it to speak to us. That you would, in fact, use it to continue the ministry that the Holy Spirit is doing in each of our individual lives and also that he is doing here among us corporately as a local church, Apostles Church. So God, use your word to build up the body of Christ today. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, good morning, everyone. Please be seated. As a pastor, I would tell you that of all the things that I get to do, performing weddings has got to be one of my absolute favorites. I mean, who doesn't love a good wedding, right? It's a joyful celebration of love. It's the gathering together of family and friends, oftentimes, who you haven't seen in many years. It's usually an elegant party. It's good food and good drink. It's laughter and it's dancing. We all love that. And if you enjoy a good wedding, I would submit to you that you probably would have really enjoyed an ancient Jewish wedding. Uh, Sometimes these could go on for upwards of a week. Just a week-long wedding celebration. Now, some of you who are nodding a moment ago about, yeah, I love a good wedding, are now looking panicked. And you're thinking, I don't know that I'd sign up for that. A week-long wedding celebration with other people? Maybe that sounds a little bit too much to you. Well, if it does, I'm with you on that. That does sound a little bit daunting, carving out an entire week of your life to gather together and celebrate two people becoming one. But I would submit to you that probably has more to do with the fact that you and I in the modern West have very, very busy lives, right? We look at our calendars and they're so full. 
Even if today somebody here at church is like, hey, we should get together this week. For many of you, you're like, that sounds great, but I just don't know where to fit it in. So we're extremely busy in the thought of getting together and setting aside an entire week of your calendar to celebrate one thing, a wedding, just sounds too much. But I think it's also related to the fact that you and I in the modern West have unlimited entertainment options. We're constantly finding different ways to enjoy ourselves and have fun and be entertained. But back then, you should know that a wedding was the biggest event in any small town or village in Israel. It was the supreme social gathering. It was a unique time where you got to socialize, where you got to make music, to dance, and listen, to be fed and fed and fed some more. And so, particularly among the poor, which was almost everybody, a wedding was the highlight of their social outings. I bring this up, of course, because a wedding is the first of the three images that Jesus uses in our passage before us to answer the question that he's brought in verse 18 about why his disciples are not fasting the way that John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are doing. The structure of this passage is pretty straightforward. Verse 18 is this question about fasting. And then in verses 19 through 22, Jesus uses these three different images that are common to everyday life to respond to this question about fasting. Let's look then again at the question about fasting found in verse 18. It says this, Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Now, in Matthew's gospel, in his telling of this same story, we're tipped off to the fact that the question is not coming from people in general, it's coming from John's disciples. And we just read here that John's disciples themselves are observing a fast at this moment. The Pharisees and their disciples are also observing a fast. So they're looking and they're saying, look, we're fasting right now, but why aren't your disciples fasting, Jesus? They want to know why. Now, fasting, of course, is the abstaining from food. And people all around the world fast for many different reasons. For many people, they'll fast for spiritual reasons. Uh, For some people, they do it for weight loss or health reasons. Hey, I'm going to start fasting, do some intermittent fasting. You might fast when you go get your blood drawn, for example. You have to fast before they take your blood. So people fast for all sorts of reasons. But fasting, as many of you know, has a very long biblical history as a spiritual practice. We see it attested to in many places in the Old Testament. And so the question becomes, what was fasting all about in the Old Testament? What were people trying to do through fasting? Well, according to the Baker Encyclopedia of the Bible, in the Old Testament, the fast was regarded as an act of self-renunciation designed to mollify God's wrath and to move him to act in gracious disposition. So people would fast in an attempt to say, we don't want to experience God's wrath. We want God's blessing in our lives. In times of emergency, the people fasted to persuade God to spare them from impending calamity. Individuals fasted in the hope that God would liberate them from trouble. Fasting was attached to prayer to assure that God would answer the prayers. 
Throughout the Old Testament, fasting is associated with a, and this is going to be significant, mournful attitude of pleading with God to aid the supplicant. So to simplify, people fasted and prayed to seek God's help and God's deliverance from a whole range of different life experiences. Over the centuries, the Jewish people began to observe certain fasts on a regular basis. Also over the centuries, fasting, unfortunately, was oftentimes abused. Rather than being a spiritual discipline that flowed from a heart that really longed for God and longed for the deliverance of God, far too often, fasting became just a hypocritical ritual that the people went through. And therefore, the Old Testament prophets sometimes denounce the people and their fasts. For example, in Jeremiah 14, 12, Jeremiah records the Lord as saying this, Though they fast, I will not hear their cry. God was not pleased with their fasting. For many of the Pharisees, who this brings us back now to Mark chapter 2, who are among those that are fasting, fasting among the Pharisees became an act of self-righteousness. What I mean by that is fasting became one of the many ways that the Pharisees would try to prove their righteousness and justify themselves. Nowhere is this more clearly seen than in Luke chapter 18 and the famous story of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Jesus says this in verse 9. He told a parable to some who, notice this, who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Jesus says two men went up into the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like, and you can just imagine him as he's in the temple, you can imagine him turning and pointing, even like this tax collector. So he's self-righteous. And what is he basing his self-righteousness on? I'm not like those people, I do what? Here's verse 12. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of everything I get. So he's looking at all of his works, all of his righteousness as the the way to justify himself. And so you've got Pharisees who are fasting twice a week. And in addition, they're observing all the other Jewish fasts. And you've got John's disciples who are following in John's example of being people who disciplined their bodies and fasted before the Lord. And again, they're looking at Jesus' followers and they're going, one of these three doesn't match. Remember those little worksheets for kids? One of these three doesn't match. They fast, they fast. Oh, there it is. Jesus' disciples don't fast. Why not? What's going on, Jesus? Why are you different? And Jesus answers them, and he does so by using three common everyday images. The first, as I've already pointed out, is the image of a wedding. Look again at verse 19. And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. Verse 20, the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. Notice that Jesus does not dismiss fasting as being a practice that has no place ever again. He actually says there's coming a day, and we'll talk about this in a minute, when his disciples will begin to fast again. So it's not that fasting is somehow wrong or a bad practice or a practice that, again, is going to end from this point on. 
But Jesus is pointing out there is something new and unique and special going on right now in this moment that is making fasting among my followers actually quite inappropriate. And he's suggesting to the Pharisees and the disciples of John that a helpful paradigm to grasp what's going on with his presence right now is thinking about a wedding feast and what goes on at a wedding feast. The basic argument is very easy to understand. Jesus is saying here, guys, listen, at a wedding, that is a time for feasting and celebrating and rejoicing. That's what you do at a wedding. Fasting is inappropriate for a wedding. Just like it would be inappropriate to go to a funeral and be laughing and celebrating. It just doesn't match up. In Matthew's version of this story, Jesus substitutes the word mourn for the word fast. Here's Matthew 9.15. Jesus says to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? And this is consistent with what we know about fasting in the Old Testament. Again, to quote the Baker Encyclopedia of the Bible, they say throughout the Old Testament, fasting is associated with what? With a mournful attitude. And Jesus confirms this in his teaching on the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6.16. He says this to his followers, When you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. So Jesus here is saying, listen, Is it appropriate for people to go to a wedding, the guests who have been invited to go to a wedding and be gloomy with downcast faces? Does that make sense? Is that appropriate while the wedding festivities are going on? Is it appropriate to be unwilling to enter in and feast and laugh and celebrate with the happy couple that are being married? Of course not. Gloominess does not fit in with what a a wedding is meant to be or meant to convey. And so here's the turn of the argument. Jesus is saying to his questioners, For my disciples to fast while I am here present with them would be just as inappropriate. It's not fitting to who I am and what I've come to do. Friends, the presence of Jesus is a time for celebration not for solemnity. And this is Jesus' big point. The reason for this is because with the arrival of Jesus of Nazareth was the arrival of the kingdom of God in all of its glory. This is the very good news or the gospel that Jesus came to announce. If you go back to chapter 1 of Mark, in verses 14 and 15, we read this. After John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God or the the good news of God and saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. See, in the Old Testament, the Jewish people were looking forward to the day when God's kingdom would come. They were looking forward to the day when God would judge their enemies and God would exert his rule and his reign over the entire earth. And the reason they wanted this so badly was because they knew that when God's kingdom came, it would be the end of all of their oppression, all of their suffering, and all of their misery. And at the same time, it would be the beginning of perpetual peace and blessing and joy and celebration and laughter. And it's no surprise then That when the Old Testament speaks of the fullness of the kingdom 
or the new creation that God was promising to his people, its marks are joy and feasting and laughter. Here's Isaiah 25, 6 through 9. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, or of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain, speaking of Jerusalem, the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth For the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. So the people of God have been looking forward to this day. When God wipes away all of their tears. When death is no more. When life is just feasting and celebration and laughter. And here comes Jesus, God's Messiah, into the world. And he's ushering in the kingdom of God. Which again is meant to be marked by feasting and joy and laughter. This is why we so often find Jesus. At feasts and celebrations. So much so that people actually accused him of being a glutton and a drunkard. Which of course was not true. But friends, in his very life... Jesus embodied the hallmarks of the kingdom of God. Everywhere he went and everything he touched was colored with the hue of the new creation, the kingdom of God fully realized. And so as Jesus is here for three years, the blind are given their sight. The deaf are able to hear. The hungry are being fed. The poor are being uplifted. The oppressed are being vindicated. The dead are being raised back to life. See, the disciples of Jesus could not fast while Jesus, the bridegroom, was with them because he has come to usher in the new creation. Oh, what place then does sorrow and sadness and mourning have at a time like that? I think there are some strong implications here for the place of joy in the life of a Christian. Jesus here is saying that fasting and sort of the mourning and sorrow attached to that is quite out of place in light of the new creation that he's ushering in. We as Christians have the presence of Christ with us. And one of the hallmarks of the Christian life, one of the fruit of the spirit that we should bear is joy. That should be something that is true in the Christian life. We should be people that have a sustaining and an abiding joy. Now that does not deny that we have sorrow in our lives. It doesn't deny that we have challenges and difficulties. We're going to talk about why that is in just a minute. But again, I think it underscores the reality that Jesus, the bridegroom, has come. And if you're a Christian, he's come like personally into your life. And the arrival of Jesus is the arrival of sustaining joy. I want us to put Isaiah 25.9 back on the screen for us really quickly. Because embedded in the hope of the coming of the kingdom of God was the hope that God himself would come and bring salvation to his people. Here's verse 9 again, Isaiah 25. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God, we have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord, we have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. 
And here Jesus, in Mark chapter 2, is tying himself into that expectation. And he does that by calling himself the bridegroom. What do I mean? Some of you know this already, but in the Old Testament, God himself often refers to himself as the bridegroom and Israel as his bride, oftentimes his very unfaithful bride. Here's Jeremiah 31, 32. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their what? Husband, declares the Lord. Or here's Hosea chapter 2, first in verse 16, it says, And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband. A couple verses later in verses 19 and 20, Hosea goes on to say, I will betroth you to me forever. He's speaking on behalf of the Lord. I will betroth you or engage you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness and you shall know the Lord. So again, in the Old Testament, God is the bridegroom and the people are the bride. And here's Jesus and he's tying himself into this Old Testament portrayal of God himself as husband to Israel. He's subtly hinting here at his own divine status. And Jesus is not alone in making that connection. John the Baptist will actually do the same thing in John chapter 3. He will call Jesus the bridegroom and the people the bride. Jesus of Nazareth is, is God incarnate who ushered in the kingdom of God by bringing salvation to his people. And now for the first time in Mark's gospel, Jesus is actually going to hint at how that salvation is brought about. And it's totally not what the Jews were expecting. Look again in verse 20. Jesus says, when the bridegroom is taken away from them. This is Jesus' first allusion to his impending death when he's going to die on the cross. And it is only an illusion. It's not a clear statement about his death, like the statements that he's going to make later in the gospel. It's just an illusion about his death. And the reason for that, as we'll see shortly, is because the people have no category yet for a Messiah who will die. And so Jesus just alludes to the fact that he will be taken away. He will die. God's salvation will come through the death of the Messiah. And so, in response to the question about fasting, Jesus' response is this. Fasting would be inappropriate for my disciples in light of who I am and what I've come to do. But, as we mentioned earlier, there will come a day when fasting is once again appropriate for his disciples. And when is that? Look again at the end of verse 20. After the bridegroom is taken away, he says, then they will fast in that day. On Wednesday of this last week, we practiced a church-wide fast, and many of you participated in that. And just to calm your, con your consciences right now, that was legitimate, and that was appropriate. Jesus says, disciples of his will be fasting again after he is taken away. Meaning after his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension back to the Father, fasting is now going to be appropriate again for the people of God. Disciples of Jesus are going to be right in the fact that they ought to practice the discipline of fasting. 
At the first coming of Jesus 2,000 years ago, our Lord came and he inaugurated the kingdom of God. He inaugurated the new creation. It's like he kicked it off. And he secured what the new creation was going to provide through his death, burial, and resurrection. But the kingdom is not yet consummated. The kingdom is not yet fully realized. And it won't be until Jesus returns again in the future. And so in the here and now, in the time that you and I are living in, we're living in a tension. It's a tension between what we already have in Christ, the beginnings of the new creation, and what still lies ahead for us at the return of Christ when we experience the fullness of all that he has promised. And this explains why your life right now as a Christian is not all smooth sailing. Your life, like my life, is marked by wonderful highs probably and really, really low lows. Your life is marked by successes and setbacks. Your life is marked by things that provide lots and lots of happiness and things that are crushing. Right now, you and I as Christians, we see in part, but in that day, we're going to see clearly. Right now, we live by faith, but in that day, we're going to live by sight. And it's the reality of this tension between the inauguration of the new creation and its fulfillment, it's because of that tension that you and I ought to fast right now. Prayer and fasting help us to persevere in the trials of our lives by reorienting our minds and our hearts on the unseen realities of the kingdom. And many of us who were fasting together on Wednesday were attesting to the fact that that's what was happening. As we were fasting, it was reminding us throughout the day those hunger pains when you would feel them. We're reminding us of the longings that we still have that are unmet right now, but that are going to be met at the return of Christ and the marriage supper of the Lamb. But friends, this is why our fasting as Christians, just like our lives, need not always be gloomy. Yes, as we've been saying, life is difficult even for the Christian. We face many trials, we experience many challenges, but here's the catch. And this is where that abiding and sustaining joy is found. If you are a Christian here this morning, then then you know that there is coming a day that the clouds are going to part. You know that there is coming a day when the light will break through in the darkness and in the pain and the suffering. You know that you have a bright and a glorious future in the kingdom of our Father. And so the tension looks like what the Apostle Paul said, that you and I live our lives right now sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Sorrowful because things are not yet how they ought to be. The people that you love get sick and they die. The relationships that you value sometimes are destroyed and severed through sin. The body that you want to use to glorify God and serve people and enjoy sometimes begins to break down and it doesn't work the right way. The feast that you want to have and the home that you want to open up to other people sometimes is not there because there's no money in the bank. This life is marked by a lot of sorrow. But again, there's an abiding joy underneath all of that for those of us who are in Christ because we know that just as surely as Jesus came 2,000 years ago and kicked off the new creation through his death and resurrection, we know he will come again and he will bring all of these things in their 
fullness, and therefore we rejoice. And so, friends, with this image of a wedding, Jesus is showing the people why the disciples were right in not, fa- in not fasting. But with the final two images, Jesus shows the people why they failed to get it. Why did they miss that? Why didn't they understand that? Well, Jesus is going to show them. Look at verse 21. Our Lord says this, No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. So Jesus uses the images now of the unshrunk cloth and the old wineskin. Now again, these, these images are both coming from everyday life. So these would have been perfectly understandable to his first audience. And I'm no seamstress. So surprise, surprise. But the meaning of the first one certainly not lost on me. I think I can get my head around that. Jesus is saying, look, if you've got a used garment or you have clothes that you've already worn and you've washed before and you tear it, you don't go get a patch that is brand new material and then attach that to the hole that you've torn because then when you wash the clothing the second time, after you've patched it, the new material itself will shrink down and it's going to tear away what you've sewn and actually make a worse hole than you started with. Therefore, you need to put a patch on an old garment that has been shrunk already, a used patch, a worn out patch, so that it will not destroy the garment worse. The second image is a little bit more difficult to understand, for me at least, probably because I don't know a lot about wine, and I certainly don't know much about how they stored wine in the ancient world, but I did my homework. The way that they would store wine in the ancient world was in a wineskin which was made of goat skin. And so they would make wine and they would dump that brand new wine into a goat skin container. As the new wine would ferment, it would stretch the wineskin. But because the wineskin was brand new and it was new goat skin, it could, it could do that. It could stretch with the new wine. However, if you got new wine and you got an old wineskin that had already been stretched to its limit and you dumped the new wine in there and filled that pre-stretched wine or goat skin up, once the new wine ferments there, it's going to explode the wineskin because the wineskin cannot stretch anymore. And so Jesus' point is, he's saying, hey, you guys all know this. You need a new wineskin if you're going to store brand new wine. This is what was going on. New wine is for fresh wineskins. Here's Jesus' point. He's saying with both of these images, he's saying, listen, the new does not mix with the old. The new and the old do not, do not mix. The reason why you didn't understand why my disciples are not fasting like all of you are is because you are failing to grasp the new thing that God is doing in history right now through me. This is what Jesus is getting at. The kingdom of God is inaugurating a new age of salvation that is fundamentally different from anything that they had known before. As one commentator put it, Jesus is not here to put a patch on Judaism, but to inaugurate the new creation. I titled the sermon this morning, Paradigm Shift. Paradigm Shift. And this is the reason why. In Christ, God was doing something new. And the old paradigms that the Jews had of the Messiah and that they had of what God was intending to do for them and what God was intending to do in the world 
were not capable of accepting the truth of the gospel. And until they got that right, everything that Jesus and his disciples were going to do was going to just trip them up over and over and over again. And that's what we see as we read the Gospels. As we move forward, Jesus' interaction with the Sabbath is a stumbling block. Jesus' disciples not washing their hands before they eat is a stumbling block. Over and over and over again, his teaching on the temple is a stumbling block. Because they've got old paradigms of thought, and they are not capable of understanding the new thing that God is doing in and through Jesus Christ. The old paradigms of Judaism had no category for God himself coming into the world in the person of the Messiah. And they had no paradigm for a dying Messiah. No, their paradigm was this. God's going to send us a new human king like David. He's going to get rid of these Romans. He's going to reestablish the physical kingdom of Israel right here, right now. And we're going to be in charge again. We're going to be powerful. And actually, we're going to be the new Rome. We're going to rule over the whole world here And now that was their paradigm. And Jesus is saying, listen, you've got to get rid of those old paradigms or you're going to miss it. And it'll destroy you. Because you have this old understanding of what it looks like to have a sacrifice for your sins. But I am the ultimate sacrifice for your sins. You have an old understanding of how to gain access to the presence of God called the temple. But I am the temple. You have this old understanding of the high priest who mediates between God and man, but I am the great high priest who ever lives to make intercession for you. Jesus is the fulfillment of all of those things and so much more. These were all shadows, but the substance is Christ. And so Jesus is saying, listen, if you do not open yourself up to the reality that God is doing something new and unexpected in me, it will utterly destroy you. Now this is hugely significant. What this means is that the people needed to let Jesus himself fill in for them who he is and what he came to do. And to help them to see how that doesn't contradict the Old Testament, but rather fulfill it. They need Jesus to fill that in for them. To misunderstand the ministry of Christ is to miss everything. If we get Jesus wrong, we are lost. The unfortunate thing, though, is that old paradigms are really hard to get rid of. Even after Jesus had ministered, died, rose, and ascended, there were many who still retained the old paradigms and ran the risk of destroying the good news that Jesus died to bring. In fact, all you have to do is get to Acts 15. And even within the early church, there's debate about whether or not these non-Jews who want to accept Jesus as their Messiah need to become Jews in order to go to heaven. And the church has to have a council, and they have to decide that's not right. We're not going to import these old wineskins, these old paradigms, into the new reality of what Christ has come to do. There's freedom in Jesus, and Jesus is the Messiah for the whole world, not just of the Jewish people. Old paradigms are hard to get rid of. Perhaps no paradigm has been harder to jettison than the idea that we as human beings have to do something to earn our own salvation. It seems like every generation since Christ 
lived and died and rose, has struggled with one iteration of this or another. The idea that we need to earn our spot in heaven. Grace flies in the face of everything we know intuitively in life. In life, you've got to earn it. You've got to earn everything that you get. And so people think to themselves, surely I've got to do something to earn God's favor and God's approval. I have to prove my worthiness somehow. And how many are so close to the kingdom of God but keep stumbling over the gospel of grace. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 reminds us, for by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. In closing, I want to speak just for a moment to those who have joined us this morning that are not Christians. You've never put your faith and your trust in Jesus, but you're here and we're really, really grateful for that. I want to ask you this question. What paradigms of thought might you be imposing on Jesus as you evaluate Christianity? Is the idea of God becoming man outside of your paradigm of possibility? Is the idea that all humans are sinful and deserving of God's judgment outside of your paradigm of either the goodness of mankind or the goodness of God? Is the idea that an ancient book written thousands of years ago, is the very word of God outside of your paradigm of possibility. Friend, in order for anyone to understand Jesus Christ and receive any benefit from him, we cannot impose our own paradigms and our own expectations on him. We have to let him lead us. We have to let him guide us into understanding. We have to let the life and the teaching of Jesus stand on its own two feet and just evaluate it for what it is. We have to deal with Jesus as he reveals himself to be in the Gospels. And it's only when we do that that our hearts become capable of being filled by the grace and the love of God in Christ. And so if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, I would just challenge you. To consider, maybe for the first time in your life, that what God is doing in the world and what God has done in the world might just be more surprising than you ever imagined. And it might run against all of the paradigms and expectations that you've always held on to. Jesus makes it clear that new wine is for fresh wineskins. Let's pray together. God, this morning we are encouraged in our hearts by this beautiful picture of the kingdom of God and of the new creation, the picture of a wedding feast. We're encouraged by the reality that there is coming a day for all of us who have put our faith in Christ where we will feast together in the house of God, where our continual experience will be that of joy and peace and laughter and satisfaction. And God, we pray now as we continue journeying on in this, this, this season of tension between the already and the not yet, that God, no matter how difficult the circumstances of our lives become, we pray that you would sustain us with an abiding joy. That God, we would be a people filled with hope, filled with expectation of the good things to come. And God, we do pray that even as we fast, and fast we should, 
that God, the very experience of fasting would point us forward to the realities of those longings being fulfilled in Christ. God, we love you, we honor you, we worship you today. In Jesus' name, amen.